And now, Father, as we come to your word, once again, we thank you for it. And once again, we humble ourselves and remember that we are beggars looking for spiritual nourishment. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us our daily bread as we study your word today. By the power of the Holy Spirit working within us, may we hear the voice of the Good Shepherd who speaks to his sheep, who calls out to his sheep, who loves his sheep, and who gave himself for his sheep. Father, use this time to bring glory to the Good Shepherd, to Christ, and to strengthen your people, to call your people, to convict your people, to nourish and grow your people. All for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to the book of John, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 18 today. Uh, this is a longer chapter than, uh, than the previous one, so we're going to be in this one for a while, maybe as long as we were in the last one, which was a long time, like three months, right? As Christians, we don't hesitate to affirm one of the very basics of the Christian faith, and that is that there is only one way to be saved from the penalty of sin, and that is by repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that he is the one and only true Savior, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. But one of the beautiful things about the gospel, one of the things I, I anyway, love so much about the gospel while, is that while there's only one way to be saved, one narrow path through faith alone in Christ alone, there are many, many roads to Christ. That's just to say that every single one of us has a unique testimony, a unique set of circumstances in which the Holy Spirit drew us to Christ the road we traveled before we repented and believed in Jesus. You know, if I were to survey each one of you, if I were to interview each one of you uh, about how you came to Christ, each one of you would have a unique set of circumstances to talk about, a unique story to tell. However, while there is all this, this wonderful uh, diversity in the ways that people come to Christ, there would be a lot of common elements if you were to survey all the testimonies in, uh, among us. Uh, some of you probably grew up going to church, and maybe you don't have an, an aha moment, you know, where, where suddenly you, uh, you, you realized that God was tearing the veil away from your heart, and you believed in Christ in that moment. You know, people who are raised in the church, they don't really have memories like that sometimes, uh, but many of you do. Many of you do have memories like that. I do. But either way, all of us had to, at one point or another, realize that if we want to be saved, we had to humble ourselves and put faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And for most of us, that moment of wanting to be saved and realizing that to be saved, we, we have to put faith in Jesus, was accompanied by a simultaneous awareness of the fact that our sin had separated us from God, that God is holy, that God is thrice holy, and that as such, he hates and must punish all sin, all sin, and that our sin had rendered us enemies of God. 
And so we came to God as all must come to God. Through Christ, humbly, laying down our pride, forsaking our desire for freedom from God, for independence from God, for autonomy from God. Now, as we've been studying the fourth chapter of the book of John, we've seen the approach that Jesus took to evangelizing this Samaritan woman at the well. He told her uh, pretty straightforwardly that if she knew the gift of God, if she knew who he was, who she was speaking to, she'd be the one asking him for a drink, and he'd give her living water. And how did she respond, if you remember? She responded with sarcasm, with biting sarcasm. She was prideful. Uh, She was not humble at this point. She couldn't understand what Jesus was talking about. She was spiritually blind. Uh, He he was talking to her about her need uh, for salvation, and she thought that he was talking about advancements in plumbing technology or something. So she responded by mocking him for claiming to be able to offer something that even their father Jacob couldn't offer, and for claiming to be able to do it when he didn't have anything to draw water from a well with. So we know that this is the account of a woman who goes from having absolutely zero interest in spiritual matters, zero interest in spiritual discussion at the beginning of the chapter, to believing that he is the promised Messiah by the time we get to the middle of the chapter. But so far, she seems to be actually less interested in spiritual discussion and spiritual issues, spiritual matters, than she was when we were first introduced to her. But that's all about to change. So today we're going to take a look at the passage that shows us uh, how that happens. And as we do, my hope and my prayer is that you and I will also glean some helpful insight for sharing the gospel and seeing others come to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So the central point of the passage that we're going to be looking at today is that if somebody is going to drink the living water of salvation, they must be brought to the point where they recognize their thirst. That is to say that if someone is going to repent and believe in Christ, they must be brought to the point where they realize their need to be reconciled to God. They must realize that their sin has separated them from God. So starting in verse 13, if we backed up just a little bit, Jesus graciously said to the Samaritan woman, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now this woman has shown no interest in even being respectful toward Jesus up until this point. She's done everything that she could to express that disinterest by being defiantly sarcastic with him. So how is she going to respond now that Jesus has told her what he has to offer her? Again, with more sarcasm and with more failure to understand the spiritual truth that Jesus is sharing. But... Not for long. Not for long. Let's let's look at verse 15. In verse 15, we read this. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. 
Now, of course, we realize that Jesus wasn't talking about physical water, like the, the water that you would draw from a well, right? He's talking about a spiritual thirst, a thirst that at this point, this woman is completely oblivious to. She's completely unaware of this need, of this thirst within her. That's one of the hardest things about evangelism, because it's uncomfortable to show somebody that they have a need that they are completely unaware of, something that they, they maybe don't even have a category for in their minds. And so when Jesus prompts her to ask for this water that will keep her permanently satisfied, her response is to think that he's saying that she won't have to come to this well in the heat of day anymore. She won't have to labor so hard to quench her thirst. But she's also seemingly pretty skeptical about this offer uh, to never thirst again. Now, just to back up a minute here, I, I don't know how anybody who thinks that salvation can be lost would deal with what Jesus has offered here, with what Jesus has said here. Jesus says that if you come to him to quench your spiritual thirst, you'll never thirst again. But somebody who believes that salvation is kind of like a shoe, something that you can gain or lose, uh, like every other possession, somebody who, who, who believes that salvation can be lost couldn't understand Jesus as actually literally saying, you'll never thirst again. Uh, they'd have to add some kind of contingency, some kind of stipulation like, you'll never thirst again if... I don't know, fill in the blank. If you never walk away from the faith, if you do this and do that and, and do that and all these things, I don't know. No, Jesus is saying that once he brings a person to salvation, once he saves a person, they are secure in their salvation. They are secure. Our salvation doesn't rest on our work. It rests on Christ's work. If it depended on us, we we would lose it before we leave today. Jesus didn't add any conditions. He didn't add any stipulations. He just said, if you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. Never. The point here, though, is that this woman seems very skeptical about believing that. She seems skeptical about that claim, about never thirsting again. But even if we take what she says charitably, if we read it in a favorable light and assume that she's actually being serious rather than sarcastic or, or snarky, she's at least very, very confused about what exactly Jesus is saying, what exactly Jesus is offering. Because the eyes of her heart are still veiled. She's still, still spiritually blind. She's still incapable of understanding spiritual truth. Remember, the unregenerate person sees everything through the lens of an unregenerate person. Remember Paul's words of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He said, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. In other words, how do, how do we understand any spiritual truth? The Holy Spirit has to teach us. We must have the Spirit of God to understand the truths of God. But what a terrifying reality to consider the way that the God who created the universe, who sustains all things through the power of his word, is standing right before this woman. 
offering her salvation, and she doesn't see it. She doesn't understand it. It's like he's speaking a foreign language. She just can't grasp it. He, he tells her that he could put a well of water springing up to eternal life, and all she can think at best is, well, that sounds really nice. You know, that, would be, that would be convenient if I didn't have to draw water from a well again. Think of all the things I'd rather be doing right now than drawing water from a well. So actually what she thinks is the prosperity gospel. She thinks that Jesus is saying, hey, I, I just want to make your life easy. She thinks that he's offering to, to improve her life or to make her life easier. She doesn't understand that what he's offering is not a different and an easier life. It's a different life altogether. Relief from the burden of drinking water from a well is the only benefit she thinks she's being offered. But she's being offered so much more than that infinitely more than that. But, and, and, and here's where we catch just a, glim, a glimmer of the possibility of hope. However, this woman meant it when she said, sir, give me this water. She did ask for what Jesus was offering her. If she meant it sarcastically, if she was serious, either way, she asked for it. And so with that much established, Jesus has to deal not only or not with her felt needs, and not only with her intellect. No, Jesus must deal with her sin. And to do that, he has to prod her conscience. And we know what a conscience is, right? People still have those, believe it or not. It's a person's inherent sense of what is morally right and what is morally wrong. You might call it a moral compass, an internal moral compass, well, what do you do when you have a compass and it gets stuck, pointing you in the wrong direction? Let's say you've got a compass and you look down and you realize that, that it's pointing toward the W instead of the N, and, and it's just stuck on the W. What do you do? Well, that's what sin does with the conscience, if you think about it. That's exactly what sin does with the conscience. It redirects it. See, the conscience is really the law of God written on the human heart. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. Paul writes this as he speaks of the just condemnation of Gentiles uh, for breaking the law when they don't have the law of God written down on paper like the Jews do. Uh, Paul says in verses 14 and 15 of, of Romans chapter 2, he says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alter alternately accusing or else defending them. In other words, God can rightly condemn someone who has never stepped foot in a church, somebody who has never heard the gospel, because he put the law of God in their hearts. And every person on the face of the earth has done something that their conscience told them not to do. That's the law of God written on the hearts of man. So when, when people steal, there, there's something in them, the law of God written on the heart, that tells them that's wrong, that murder's wrong, that worshiping a false god is wrong. But they did all those things anyway. And over time, 
what happens is practicing sin and loving sin results in the moral compass getting stuck pointing in the wrong direction. So what do you do when a compass does that, when it's stuck pointing you in the wrong direction? You shake it, right? And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do next in order to awaken the conscience of the Samaritan woman. So let's look at verses 16 to 18. This is how he responds to her, starting with verse 16. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. See, the conscience must be awakened for the same reason that a person who's following a broken compass must realize that their compass isn't leading them in the right direction, and that is for the sake of going in the right direction recognizing a need, and turning around. One of the ways that sin distorts our moral compass is by pointing to a false uh, hypothetical true north, or proverbial true north. That is to say, if we compare ourselves to something other than God's law, whatever that is, is a false true north. We're lost, but by nature, we, we don't want to be found. People don't want to be found. So, so we, we have to have some kind of standard by which we judge ourselves and make ourselves feel okay with our sin. And so what people do is they start comparing themselves to other people. Or they'll say, you know, okay, well, the law says I can do this. If the law uh, of the land says I can do this, then, then I can do this. Never mind what God's law might say. Uh, So people will compare themselves to others. They'll compare themselves to sinful laws uh, of the land, human laws. Uh, People will compare themselves to how awful of a person they once were, but no longer are, supposedly. People even compare themselves to fictional characters when they watch movies, all to feel okay with their sin. And that's what happens. We feel okay with ourselves, but not if we compare ourselves to what scripture says. That's when the conscience is stirred. That's when the conscience is stricken, when it is exposed to God's holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient law, which, using the illustration of a compass, is the one and only true north. The sinner will not come to Christ unless they realize that there is an urgent need for them to do so. So how do they become aware of that urgent need? How, how, do we, how do we stop them from, from justifying it by comparing themselves to other standards, false, true norths? We, we have to startle their conscience. We have to poke and prod at their conscience. They must be made aware of their sin. That's the only way they get a sense of urgency about it. As A.W. Pink notes, he says, quote, The sinner will not flee to Christ as a refuge from the wrath to come unless a due sense of guilt is upon him, end quote. So friends, any, evan- any evangelistic strategy that does not produce an awareness of sin, and more than that, an awareness of the danger of being a person who is under the wrath of God as an enemy of God, any evangelistic strategy that doesn't include those things is bound to fail. 
Notice that Jesus doesn't create an awareness of sin in the Samaritan woman's mind by saying anything that even comes close to resembling God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. If the natural man, think about this for a second. Think about what the Bible says. Think about what Jesus is doing. If the natural man is only capable of thinking in terms of natural things like a natural man only can, what do you think they think it means when you say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? They think, wow, God loves me? That's great. He's, he's actually got pretty good taste then, I guess. Uh, and, and hey, you know, I, I have some pretty good plans for my life too. If God wants to guarantee that those things will come to pass, if God wants to help me accomplish all the goals of, that I've set of getting rich and being powerful, that just sounds like a win-win to me. I mean, do you see how an evangelistic strategy like this does nothing to awaken the human conscience? In fact, it actually sends the implicit message to the conscience, keep sleeping. God, God already loves you. You're, you're good just the way you are. Nothing needs to change. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the, the 20th century's version of Charles Spurgeon, the best preacher of the 20th century, in my opinion. He put it this way. He said, quote, There is a superficial evangelism which puts the gospel entirely in terms of human beings. Are you unhappy? Are you worried? Do you want this or that? Come to Christ and you'll get it. End quote. And so people come. They've never trembled under the holy law of God, and that's because they were never taught it. End quote evangelism must do something to stir and awaken the conscience to make the sinner aware of their need by making them aware of their guilt before God to shake their moral compass up to working the way that God designed it to work and that is to cause a person to be humble to humble the sinner and, and force them to their knees rather than keeping them standing pridefully and defiantly before God as rebels. Because the sinner will not confess their sin if they are not first convinced and convicted of their sin. Evangelism that does not stir the conscience is going to make false converts. Empty professors, people who want the benefits of God, they want the gifts of God, but they don't actually want a commitment to God. They don't actually want to change their life because they don't see that they are condemned by their actions and by their sin. So, how does Jesus stir the Samaritan woman's conscience? By telling her to go and get her husband. Go call your husband. He, he, he's getting to the root of her problem. He, he, he's making her aware. He, he's, he, he's touching the conscience by reminding her of the Ten Commandments. Specifically, the one dealing with adultery. Uh, she, she's asked for this, this living water that, uh, that will eliminate her thirst. She's thinking her need to, to draw water from a well. But before Jesus brings her to faith, he has to deal with the sin in her life. She must be made aware of her guilt before God. Don't for one minute, friends, this is, this is what so many evangelistic strategies are guilty of. Don't for one minute think that you can evangelize in a wiser, more friendly, less offensive way than Jesus did. If anyone's going to come to Christ 
as a result of evangelism, they must, like the Samaritan woman, be made aware of their guilt before God. And that comes by exposing them to the law of God. But at the same time, this is, this is not uh, giving us permission. This is not an invitation for us to beat somebody over the head uh, with the truth of their guilt. Uh, n- notice the graciousness of Christ. He could have said, you know, I, I know all about you. You're, you're an adulterer. You've, you know, you've cheated on all your husbands. Uh, you know, what hope could there possibly be for somebody like you? No, he's gracious in making her aware of her guilt. I mean, what is truth without love? First uh, Corinthians 13 says it's a, it's a clinging symbol. Yes, we must speak the truth. Yes, it's incredibly important. It's vital that we speak the truth. But we must speak the truth with love as our motivation. Truth without love is as powerless as love without truth. You're trying to win the person. You're not trying to win an argument. So he says, go call your husband and come here. See, there are two instructions there. Two imperative commands here. First, go call your husband. With that instruction, he's, he's prodding her conscience. He's speaking to her conscience, knowing that she's five times divorced. And now she's living with a man who isn't even her husband. Maybe she's given up on the idea of marriage altogether. If Jesus had, had only said, however, go call your husband and just left it at that, she would have been left without any sense of hope. But he gives her a second instruction. Come here. Come. Go call your husband and come. That's, that command is spoken to her heart. The first one to her conscience, the second one to her heart. He's completely aware of her sin He knows exactly what she's done, but he's welcoming her to come to him anyway. He he loved her anyway. He sought her anyway. He saves her anyway. She was not only to go, but she was to come. Baggage and all. And and he makes her, he he lets her know, "I, I know about all your baggage. I know about all your sin. I know about everything. I know it all. Just come. And friends, that is the only way to come to Jesus. That's the only way anybody can come to Jesus. That is baggage and all, sin and all. There is no other way. There's no way to come to him without sin, without baggage. If, if, if somebody could come to him without any sin, that, that's coming to him without any need. And if there's no need, uh, why would they come? Right? But Jesus didn't come to save people who didn't have a need. He didn't come to save or to call the righteous, did he? No. He said in Mark 2.17, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now Jesus, when he said that, he wasn't actually saying that there are some people out there who, who don't need me. He wasn't saying that there's, there are some people out there who are righteous already, they're, they're healthy already, they don't need a physician. What he was saying was that a person who doesn't realize that they are a sinner won't realize their need to come to him. If somebody thinks that they're good with God, what need do they have for Jesus? The same use that somebody who thinks they're 
they're too healthy to need a physician. They, they kind of have the attitude, hey, hey, doc, you know, it's, it's good to have you in my uh, speed dial or in my cell phone, whatever. I'm good, though, and, and I'll just give you a call when I need you, right? That's, that's kind of the attitude we have toward doctors. At least that's the attitude that I have toward a, a doctor. But what a terrible, terrifying, horrible thing to think that way about Jesus. No, you, you, you don't only come to him when you feel like you have some kind of need for him. You come to him because you realize that you've had a need your whole life and you become aware of it. You, you realize that you need somebody to stand in your place and to bear the wrath of God against your sin in your place. You come to Christ because you realize that you're not good. In fact, you've never been good. And only Jesus is good. You come to him because you realize you're a wretched sinner. And you know that Jesus came to call and seek and save sinners. You come to him because he's worthy of all of your devotion, all of your obedience, all of your worship. The sinner must come to Jesus, sin and all. There is no other way. And so Jesus speaks truth in a loving way to her conscience. Go, call your husband. And he speaks love and grace to her heart. Come, come to my side. Now make no mistake about it. Jesus is not stirring up her conscience as a way of punishing her as a way of being unkind to her. No, he, he's doing it actually for the opposite reason. He, he's doing it because he loves her enough to tell her the truth. See, love won't let somebody feel like everything is okay when it's not. Love doesn't say, you know, it, you should just do it if it makes you happy. As if that's the greatest good, right? No, instead love says, what is the greatest good? What's the greatest benefit to this person, and the greatest benefit a person can enjoy is peace with God. Reconciliation with God through faith in Jesus Christ. But true peace with God involves confession and repentance. A sinner must come to Christ just as he or she is, but Christ loves us too much to just leave us that way to leave us unchanged. And God's word assures us that we are created for good works in Christ, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are God's worksmanship created for good works in Christ. And that the purpose of the life we have that God has ordained is for us to grow in Christ's likeness in all circumstances. That's from Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 28 and 29, which means we have a lot of changing to do. We have a lot of growing and confessing and repenting to do, which is only possible because of God's grace working in us. And praise be to God that by his grace, he does that. He accomplishes those purposes. We do the good works that he created us to do. Every circumstance in our life, in one way or another, whether we realize it now or, or in eternity and glory, uh, every circumstance contributes to us growing in our walk with Christ, growing in, in our likeness 
to Christ. Praise be to God that by his grace, he works these changes in us. He changes our desires. He changes our affections. He changes our aspirations. And we become increasingly conformed to his will. But will you notice with me, as we consider this conversation that's taking place between Jesus and this Samaritan woman, consider with me how the tone immediately changes when Jesus makes her aware of her sin. That's one way that we can see the effects of the conscience being stirred, of the conscience being awakened. It's almost as if she, she just instantly sobered up. All she can say is, I have no husband. Compare that with everything else she's said up until this point. It's like she's had a moment of realization. Her, her whole tone has changed. Do you see how it's changed? What's made the difference? Her conscience has been poked. Her, her conscience is now awake. It's, it's humbled her. She, she's, she's realizing her guilt before God. And now Jesus starts to reveal himself more and more fully to her, confirming her story, but in an alarming way. I mean, he's a stranger as far as she's concerned, but she, she's completely known by him. He knows everything about her. He knows her circumstances. He knows her sin. She's had five divorces, and the man that she's shacking up with now, I mean, she's not even married to him. Now, in that culture, it would have been very unusual for a woman to have that many divorces. In our culture, you know, you can divorce your spouse for just about anything. You, you can divorce your spouse if you don't like a freckle on the bottom of their foot. I mean, the courts in our culture just don't care. Uh, they'll just give you the divorce. And, and that's the attitude that that man has toward it. But in first century Israel, divorce was very rarely the result of somebody just being unhappy with it. Somebody saying, ah, irreconcilable differences. We're just incompatible. No, usually it was due to infidelity. So, so it's possible, if, if not likely, it's possible that the five men she was divorced from had divorced her because she had been unfaithful to every single one of them. Something, by the way, that Jesus makes very clear here is that living together is not the same as marriage in God's eyes. You'll, you'll hear people say that marriage is just a piece of paper, that marriage is, is just a formality. Oh, no, it's not. Jesus says you're not even married to the guy you're living with. No, living with somebody is not the same as marriage in God's eyes. In God's eyes, marriage is a lifelong monogamous covenant between one biological male and one biological female, period. In God's eyes, how important is marriage? It's important enough that he tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that it's a picture of the gospel. Marriage is an institution ordained by God. It belongs to Him. It does not belong to us. It belongs to Him. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to the American judicial courts. Marriage belongs to God. We can't just do with it whatever we want. We aren't free to tinker with the terms and conditions and details of it. And that's exactly what our culture is doing with it right now, isn't it? And it's exactly what this Samaritan woman was doing with it. And so she stood guilty before God. I'm positive that one of the things John, the author of this book, wanted us to see when he recorded this is that Jesus is all-knowing. That he is fully God. Fully man, fully God. 
Only God could know all these details about this woman's life. She had come face to face with the startling realization that God is not distant and that God is not uncaring about our sin. No, he's aware of it. He knows all about it. There's nothing in all of creation that escapes his notice, and that's what makes this invitation to drink from the water that only Christ can give so startling. And not only startling, but so beautiful, is that he's giving her this invitation even though he knows everything about her. So she's been invited to drink of the living water that only Christ can give. But one cannot come to him pridefully. One cannot come to him with confidence in themselves, with confidence in their own inherent or intrinsic moral goodness. One cannot come to him without realizing that they are unworthy of him. The only way to come to Christ is to come humbly, and nothing humbles. Even the strongest person, like the realization that they are guilty of sin and stand guilty before a holy God. Consider Peter. I mean, really, who was more masculine in Scripture than Peter? Maybe David. I mean, there might be a couple guys in there that, that are, uh, you know, are more prone to put their foot in their mouth than Peter, but I don't know. I mean, he's, he's really rough around the edges throughout the gospel narratives, isn't he? And as a fisherman, we can, we can be sure that he was big and, and strong and just kind of, kind of brutish, right? Until he comes face to face with Jesus. And Luke tells us about their initial encounter uh, in, in Luke chapter 5. Jesus climbs into Peter's boat to preach from it. Uh, and and when, then we start reading this starting in Luke 5, 4. When he, Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let, your, uh, let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they saw, and they came and, and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when, G, but when Simon Peter saw that, he gave Jesus a high five, <laughs> said, oh, thank you, gave him a hug and said, thank you, brother, that, that was so great. No. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinner. Even Peter, in all of his machismo, in all of his manliness, could not stand pridefully before Jesus once he was confronted with who Jesus is. The only way to come to Christ is to come humbly. And nothing humbles even the strongest person like the realization that they are guilty of sin and stand condemned before a holy God. With the Samaritan woman, she, she's confronted with the reality that this stranger, that Jesus, knows everything about her. There's nothing that she can hide from him. Do you realize, friends, that God knows everything about you? Do, you? do you realize that there's no such thing as a secret sin? I mean, maybe before men, maybe before people, but that doesn't matter. But ultimately, they're not going to judge you. 
God's the one who judges. And God's the one, the only one who can judge perfectly because God sees and knows it all. How comfortable are you with that? How comfortable are you with the reality that he knows the truth about you, about your sin? It's kind of unsettling, isn't it? I mean, to to realize the truth of what Hebrews 4.13 says. It says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. If you've never humbly come to Christ to drink this living water that he offers, if you've never come to him, trusting in him alone for salvation, how do you deal with a statement like what Hebrews tells us there? That he sees and knows it all. I mean, there there are really only, only two ways to deal with it. You either dismiss it, you blow it off, or or you're humbled by it. You can either say something like, Okay, I I stand guilty before a holy God who has promised to punish all sin. What what can I do, Lord, to escape this wrath? Or you say something like I'm not that bad. I mean, compare me to to Charles Manson. (laughs) Compare me to Hitler. You know, you you find the worst examples to compare yourself to. I'm not as bad as those people. Maybe even your next door neighbor. You know, I know that he he drinks a lot. He he swears, you know, like crazy. Uh, I'm not as bad as these people I'm surrounded by. If that's you, if that's the way you've dealt with your guilt before God, can, can I just deal with you for a moment about that, about what your chances are before him. Let's just say, hypothetically, that you only sin five times a day. Five times a day. Let's let's say, okay, you you, you take the Lord's name in vain a couple times, you look at someone other than your spouse lustfully here and there, you steal, uh, you know, time at work by clocking in a little bit late, you know, later uh, than your lunch allows you to, you sin, okay? We all sin, but let's say that, that, hypothetically speaking, you sin five times per day. Well, multiply that by seven, because there are seven days in a week. And you realize, okay, you sin 35 times per week. Now multiply that 35 by 52, and you realize that you sin 1,820 times per year. That's a lot. Now, how long do you plan on living? 75 years? 80 years? I mean, to be charitable, let's, let's go with the lower number. 1,820 times 75 years gives you a grand total of 136,500 sins. Now, what's the punishment for even the smallest one of those sins? Death is. Eternity in hell is. Scripture is clear. The wage of sin is death. Now, if you were to go before a human judge and you're found guilty of 136,500 offenses, each of which warrants the death penalty, how confident do you feel? Are you going to say, well, I'm not that bad, I'll just take my chances? Of course you won't. Of course you won't. And you are infinitely more unwise to think that you can get away with thinking that way toward God. Punishment gospel is this, that God's only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, bore the punishment that everyone who comes to him in faith deserves. 
He lived a perfect life, and he died a sinner's death. He took every one of the sins of his people upon himself, and the Father poured the cup of his wrath on his Son. This is your only hope, friends, that God himself would take on flesh and stand in our place, bearing the wrath that we deserve, covering us with his own perfect garments of righteousness. If you will humble yourself before him, this blessing of redemption and forgiveness by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is yours. Now some will initially refuse to come to God, believing that it's more than five times a day, Pastor. It's probably closer to a hundred times a day. There's no way. You couldn't fill this building. If, if, every, if every sin was a piece of paper, you, you could more than fill this whole building with it. I, how can I come to God that way? And the truth is there's no other way. There's no other way to come to him. But as a wretched beggar thirsting for the living water that only Christ can give. But as far as awareness of sin goes, this is really only the beginning of the journey. The moment that you come to him in faith and repentance, initial faith and repentance, that's just the beginning of the journey. See, the Christian life starts with an awareness of our sin, but as we grow in Christ-likeness, as we are sanctified according to God's purposes, we also become increasingly and increasingly aware of just how deeply sinful we really are. Consider Paul, who wrote in one of his earlier letters to the Corinthians, he said this, he said that he was the least of the apostles. Is that humble? Yeah, that's, that's, that's humble. Um, I'd I say that's humble. A few years later, in another one of his letters, he wrote that he was, quote, the very least of the saints. Is that humble? Yeah, you, you can see that there's a progression here. He's, he's even more humble than he had been 10 or 15 years earlier when he said that he was the least of the apostles. But then again, in one of his final letters, as his ministry was winding down, he described himself to Timothy saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. Do you see that progression? Do you see how he's becoming more and more and more humble? the longer he walks with the Lord. This is what happens during the Christian journey, the Christian life. As we become more like Christ, which is God's purpose for the Christian life, we see that there's a correspondence between our increasing awareness of, of God's complete holiness and righteousness and our own increasing awareness of the sin in our lives, in our hearts. So friends, let us never, ever take the attitude that sin isn't a big deal with God. Listen, if, if the only way for God to deal with sin on behalf of his people was to send his own son to shed his blood on our behalf, and if Jesus was so committed to saving sinners and fulfilling the will of the Father that, that, that as the perfect man, as the only sinless man to ever live, he would gladly give his body and shed his blood to accomplish that purpose how dare we ever act like sin isn't that big of a deal? How can we be flippant? How can we be casual about it in our lives? So let us resolve to take sin seriously. But that starts with keeping your eyes on the Lord and remembering that he is holy. 
and growing in our understanding of what that means exactly, that he is holy. And so as a result, we, we start taking our sin more and more seriously. We, we learn to hate it. We learn to hate it especially when we see it in our own lives. How do we learn to do that? By regularly exposing our own conscience to the word of God, to the law of God, and resolving to submit ourselves to it. See, being a Christian is not about being sinless. We all continue to sin. If somebody says they have no sin, the truth is not in him, according to 1 John. Rather, being a Christian is about the attitude that we have towards sin when we see it in our lives. Being a Christian is about dealing with sin when we see it in ourselves, being quick to confess it, quick to turn from it, quick to remember our need for Christ. Remembering that he shed his own blood to cleanse us even from that one sinful instance. Hebrews 5.11 warns us of the reality that it is possible, friends, no matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, it is possible to become dull of hearing, is, is the way that the author of Hebrews puts it. That's not saying that some people lose their physical hearing, that they go physically deaf, but they weren't maturing in Christ, and thus they were unable to handle spiritual meat, deeper spiritual truths. Why? Because their consciences were calloused. Consider the, con the contrast between those of dull hearing and understanding, uh, those described in verse 14, where the author of Hebrews writes that the solid food is for the mature because of, practicing, because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. It takes practice. How do we practice? By exposing our hearts and minds to the word of God, to the law of God. Friends, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the one true Savior, who can reconcile anyone who comes to him to God. Friends, I urge you not to be casual about the sin in your life. You can be casual about it and grow callous in your conscience, becoming dull of hearing, depriving yourself of the joy of knowing the deeper things of God, or you can deal with it. You can identify it, you can agree with what God calls sin being sin, Turn from it, confess it, bring it to the cross, and leave it there. Don't ruminate on the guilt because it's been dealt with. Believe that it's been dealt with. And remember the gospel. Walk in God's grace. Walk in the newness of life, remembering that because Christ came to save sinners, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we thank you for the nourishment that your word alone provides. We thank you for the way it awakens our conscience and keeps our conscience functioning, sharp, aware. And Father, even today, we confess to you in the silence of our hearts the guilt that we would have before you the fact that we are, are wretched sinners apart from your grace. If it were not for your grace, we would be hopeless. And so we thank you for your grace. We thank you for Christ who shed his blood so that we may live, who died the death that we deserve so that we may find new life in him.
We thank you for that. Father, as we go forth today, we pray that you would give us courage and wisdom uh, to share the gospel with people, to share the gospel with people who will perish without it. And we realize, Lord, that we can only speak to the ear, the physical ear. Only you can open the eyes of the heart. And so we trust you with the results. But give us conviction to bring the gospel to the nations for the glory of Christ and in obedience to him. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.